you're listening to the Direct Care Derm. My name is Stephen. I'm a board-certified dermatologist and direct care dermatology practice owner. I'm also your host. The Direct Care Derm is a podcast that gives you a blueprint for creating a direct care practice of your own with the help of my story as I'm living it and the stories of many friends and colleagues, both within dermatology and other fields of medicine and in relevant non-medical fields, such as marketing and finance. Each week, my friends and I will be bringing you tips, resources, education, entertaining stories, industry insights, and so much more. Consider this your one-stop shop for taking yourself from direct care curiosity to direct care mastery. At this point, you may find yourself asking, what is direct care? Direct care is the restoration of the therapeutic physician-patient relationship and the trust between patient and physician that has eroded so terribly over the last several decades. Direct care is addition by subtraction. It's the opposite of indirect care, the kind of care that's so frustrating to both patients and doctors. If you or a doctor in your life has ever talked about being burned out in medicine, this is one of the biggest reasons why. Fortunately, there's something we can do about it. By removing as many barriers as possible that stand between physicians like myself and the people who need us, Direct care practices seek to provide transparent, affordable, accessible, and superior care that meets and ideally even surpasses the expectations of the 21st century healthcare consumer. In this episode, I'm excited to bring you an interview with one of my heroes, Dr. Kathleen M. Brown. Dr. Brown is a board-certified dermatologist who started a solo direct pay practice in 2011. She graduated from the College of William and Mary in Virginia in 1980 with majors in biology and music, and from Eastern Virginia School of Medicine in 1988. She then did six years of residency, becoming board certified in dermatology in 1993 and in internal medicine in 1995. Dr. Brown then worked in a faculty practice group in Baltimore with a part-time teaching appointment at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. In 1997, she and her husband with their two young children moved from Maryland to Coos Bay, Oregon to join a multi-specialty group practicing both specialties. Her husband, Jack, had also left a senior management position in Baltimore to start his own IT company. In 2000, Dr. Brown limited her practice to dermatology. Over 13 years with the group practice, Arrangements with third-party payers became more complex and difficult, making it almost impossible to continue practicing medicine as she saw fit. Dr. Brown wanted more control over the way she practiced medicine and felt that physicians should not allow billing and diagnosis codes to affect or control the practice of medicine, and that fees should be predictable and reasonable. Because of all of this, in 2011, she opened her own solo direct-pay dermatology practice, Oregon Coast Dermatology. It operated free from third-party payers such as insurance companies, Medicare, and Medicaid. For almost eight years, Dr. Brown worked directly for her patients by getting rid of the middlemen and posting prices in public based on time spent with the patient. In 2019, she closed her practice in order to move with her husband to their property in Montana. They chose to have more time for life outside of medicine, including their time for family and outdoor recreation. She has continued to help other physicians succeed in third-party free practices. She has also kept up with her specialty of dermatology and is ready to open a part-time mobile direct-pay dermatology practice. 
She is a director on the board of the Frontier Institute and stays involved with the Free Market Medical Association. Without further ado, here's my interview with the pioneering Dr. Kathleen Brown. Welcome back to another episode of the Direct Care Derm. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Luellis, and with me today I have Dr. Kathleen Brown, a fellow board-certified dermatologist. Thank you for being here. So happy to talk with you about one of my favorite subjects. Direct pay is a very old model. It's Mm -hmm. very simple, but I ran my mouth about it a lot because (laughs) I think more people ought to do it. I am double board certified originally in internal medicine, dermatology. I finished internal medicine after dermatology, which is unusual. And I practiced both specialties for about four and a half years and went from a larger multi-specialty group to smaller multi-specialty group, eventually to solo direct pay. So some people go the other direction, but maybe right out of residency, go directly to solo. But because of the internal medicine, I really felt I needed the group, the Mm -hmm. rotation for on-call and all of that. And I'm originally from Virginia. I also double majored biology and music. It just can never make up my mind and go with one thing. (laughs) So then I started my direct pay practice, Oregon Coast Dermatology in 2011. Yeah, I was one of the first. Mm You, you sure were. You mentioned that you double majored and one of those was music. Is music still a big part of your life? Tell me about how it's shaped your relationship to medicine and, and to your patients or how you use that to balance your life in other ways. I'm fascinated when people have deep interests outside of their career and identification in medicine. Well, I'm, my mother, who's 91, was a teacher and she eventually taught piano. And I remember being very little hearing her play piano, and she was very artsy. So there's the art and the science. Nobody really in my immediate family who was more science-oriented, but why I'm in Montana had to do with piano and why I'm married to my husband. We were in high school choir together, and he plays piano very well. I saw an ad from the bulletin board of College of William and Mary in Virginia for a job working in Glacier National Park, and they wanted musicians. But that wasn't the day job. The day job was cleaning rooms six days a week. Mm. And immediately fell in love with the hiking, of course. Yeah, it's interwoven. And yes, I still play. I don't practice as much as intermittent. I practice some of the time. I really like classical. I really like Chopin. It's remained an important part of my life. Thanks for sharing that. We both share that interest for the the great outdoors. I don't have music, unfortunately, as something that I play. I regret that a bit, and who knows what I can pick up in the future, but connecting with something beyond what we do day in and day out for our professional careers is important. Outdoors is a great way to do that. I did my internship near Salt Lake City, and that was an incredible year living in Utah for a year. Just incredible natural beauty and what you have at your disposal just by stepping outside if you embrace it. You are absolutely a leader in direct care or direct pay. There's a lot of different names for it. Mm -hmm. You said it's an old model. I love that you said that because it truly is. It's an old model. It's a simple model. It's the way doctors were before insurance companies came around and started dictating things. Maybe you can tell us about what you prefer to call it, how you talk to your patients about it. If someone calls your practice saying, what is this all about? I have insurance, but I'm not sure what's going on. If you have advice for us about how you talk about it, how you market it essentially, because it is such an old, simple model. That's why you and I think are both attracted to it. But I have so much respect for you that you've been doing it for so long. So tell me a little bit about how you talk to people about direct pay or direct care. 
I got very practiced at it and so did my staff in Oregon because mm -hmm. it did seem very novel. We'd been in that town already 13 years. My husband had a small business, so he was always talking to people. And the doctors got it the last. It, it, patients would get it right <laughs> away. Either they liked it or they didn't like it and they didn't have to come. They had other alternatives. But large number of doctors just said that will never work. But the way that we would explain it, I think, was that we work for you. I work for you. And these are the prices. And my staff would say, Dr. Brown thinks that she can do a better job for you and um, can customize. We did spend mm -hmm. a lot of time educating people. And so when people would say, what if I have this? What if I have that? Then we could estimate for them. Now that's in the law that we're required to give a good faith estimate. But we would do that anyway. People would come in and they would say, I brought this much money. I brought $60. I brought $80. Mm -hmm. And so my staff would cue me in. That's how much they had to spend. And we would see what it was they were dealing with and try to make really good use of their time. They ended up, in general, being very happy with that. I had a happier day. And I think that mm -hmm. patients would have a happier experience. They wouldn't always have a happy thing. We're doing medicine, and mm -hmm. some of the things that we see are tough health conditions to deal with. But in terms of how people are treated, we want them to be raving fans. And so all those things, I think my rule would be golden rule, just treat people as I would want to be treated. And that doesn't mean the same as I would want to be treated, but the way that person would want to be yeah. treated. There are a couple points that you mentioned there that I, I want to hit on. In addition to simply treating people how you in that position, in their shoes, would want to be treated. That's an important distinction, of course. Not how Dr. Brown, who is the dermatologist who doesn't have a, a rash she's worried about would want to be treated, but someone who needs that empathy or may have only this amount of money. That's a great rule to stick by and a great way to have raving fans. The simple fact of you having the flexibility of being able to say to someone, okay, you have $80. I can still do something for you. And I'm not going to say, I, I don't know how much what I'm going to do today is going to cost. You're going to figure that out in a couple of weeks from now, and it might be nothing, and it might be quite a bit. And I don't know what your share of that is going to be because of deductibles and coinsurance and all of that, in addition to maybe a, a copay today. <laughs> that is such a freeing thing, both for you and your patients. Uh, that alone can make being a physician so much more enjoyable. The fact that we can just come to people and meet them where they are, and we don't have to sidestep those questions and say, I, I don't really know. I don't, I'm not in charge of that. We should be in charge of how much the things we're doing are going to cost. <laughs> that makes sense. Picturing that person coming in with that $60 and, and you having the ability to, to still meet them and, and give them a, a solid product. When you transitioned to your direct uh, pay practice, you mentioned the doctors took a long time to come around to it. Maybe stubborn, maybe indoctrinated like a lot of people are these days. Maybe no one will come see me. When you shut off the flow of patients from the insurance company, I think that's what a lot of doctors are scared of. And that's when marketing comes into play. You are in charge of getting people in the door and you have to provide a superior product, an irresistible offer. You want to be able to provide something great and you want people to recognize that and you want these raving fans. When you were transitioning to your 
your direct pay practice. What are some of the things you remember that were really helpful in terms of just how you thought about things or things you actually did? What worked well? What didn't? What would you do differently? Well, the most important thing was not a thing, but a person, which is my husband, because <laughs> he did the work for a year of preparing. Yeah, okay. At first, you know, I really liked the practice that I was in. I'd been there a long time, and those were my friends, my colleagues. Um, mm -hmm. having to come to the conclusion to move out of that in order to do what I wanted to do. So we renovated a building that we owned. My husband's business was there. So that was very helpful for me. I mean, everybody needs some help with this. You're busy, you're working. I read some things to wrap my head around what I was getting ready to do, to feel good about it, to feel that it was right, to offer a choice. It was helpful that I was able to bring a staff member with me. She was someone who'd worked for me already for years. I sought the approval of my partners and office manager almost a year before I opened. I got it already, but then I had two weeks in between my previous practice and opening the new practice to catch up with everything and move and then just opened. I always learned from my patients too. And I would say that my, my patients, the new ones and the ones I'd had, they were helpful too. And they even helped me with some words. I had one gentleman, I was explaining it before I left my previous practice. I also got the permission from my group to do that. And he said, I have money. He just said it like that. Yeah. Not like I have tons of money. He just, I have money. Yeah. It's not a problem. For some people it yeah. is and some people it isn't. You wanted to give them a choice. And that's the great part about this. All we're doing is giving a choice. And if someone doesn't happen to be a fan of us as a doctor, which is a big part of the therapeutic relationship, right? If you're not comfortable, regardless of how nice the person is or how much they know, if you're for some reason not comfortable with them, it is not going to be a great experience. And it's good to have someone else to go to, not just have your insurance company say, this is the only game in town that's in network. You are, are just providing another choice and learning from our patients. After formal medical residency training, those are our best teachers. We do continuing medical education, things like that, of course, but we learn the, the most from our patients. That gentleman said, I have money. That doesn't mean I'm rich. I, I, of course, I can just pay for all of my doctors and all of this, but it means yeah, I go to the movies. I go out to eat at a restaurant once in a while. I choose where I spend my discretionary income, where I value it. And some people value their health care. But we've been trained to assume that an insurance company will indirectly pay for all of our health care, every aspect of it. And that indirect payment is what has in increased the costs astronomically. I think there's also value in that because you have skin in the game. And I love that relationship to dermatology just because of the wordplay, but people are more invested. They're going to listen more. They're going to want to use your advice more, perhaps because they're paying for it. Picture a free seminar, a free course versus a, a something you're paying for. A lot of people say that the folks who are the paying participants get a lot more from it because they pay attention. That matters in direct care. You're selecting for a group of people, not who are rich or wealthy. These are not astronomical prices we're charging. People who value their health enough to pay that amount of money. That's a beautiful way to practice because you're matching your values and how you're aligned with the people who are coming to you. Right. And for a lot of people, it actually is going to be more affordable depending on what it is that they need, what your pricing structure is. 
of course, what their insurance is. Even people on Medicare, there's people who do not have supplements because they can't afford a supplement. And I had one gentleman who, severe skin cancer, had had radiation. He lived in Arizona, he had many skin cancers. And I referred him out thinking that was going to be more affordable for him to have an excision of some big thing on his scalp. And he came back and said, please don't do that again. And he told me what his 20% of that was. It was an outpatient surgical center, not a dermatologist, ear, nose, and throat. His 20% was $2,000. Unbelievable. Yeah. I ended up negotiating a price with him. I think it, at that time, what it would have cost for me to do that sort of a thing in my office might have been 700 is a very sweet man. I knew him also. He was a school bus driver, retired. And I don't think I'm identifying anybody. But I ended up charging him $80 because I could. I could do that in my own practice. I could decide that I was going to charge less, which is actually not legal in the conventional system with Medicare or even insurance. And he made that payment in two, two payments. He came back a couple of weeks later to make the second half of that $80. And it just humbles you <laughs> that, I don't know, it's that people have something so important and that they're trusting you and that you are able to take care of them, not only medically, but sometimes better personally, because you really do care about them. It allows That's, you oh. to be kind when you need to you know, in that way. There you go. It allows you to be kind when you need to in that specific way. We're always wanting to be kind, but in that specific way that you absolutely could not be in conventional insurance-based practice where you have to say, I don't know, first of all, in terms of costs usually, and that the cost is the cost. The way that prices are negotiated between the insurance companies and the practice that are so confusing to the doctors and shocking to the patients once they get their bill, it's part of the burnout and the moral injury that we all go through because we don't know what we're doing to patients financially. What we actually receive in income compared to what they are saddled with in terms of a medical debt is so disparate. And we'll never know what they are unless they happen to come back and say to us, please never do that again. Or do you have any idea what this cost? And having to say, no, I, I don't know if it's something you build for and you work for a big hospital system. That's an awful thing to have to say to a person. We're not saying these people are struggling to even stay in their home or buy food, but certainly a $2,000 bill is a tremendous expense for them, especially when they have no idea it's coming. You are able to meet them where they are, negotiate. Isn't that an amazing thing that you could do as a physician? And it's complicated, like you said, with the Medicare issues, not even technically legal in some circumstances, but nonetheless, it was the right thing to do. And that experience stays with you in terms of your guiding philosophy for your practice. I just love the idea of this flexibility and being able to see all types of patients. That's another common criticism of this model. You're only seeing well-to-do people. How do you approach from a more systems-wise rather than just patient-to-patient your pricing and making it known that there is a sliding scale or wiggle room or something like that? How do you approach that at your practice? How do you invite those people in who say, I don't have 
$300 in my pocket or whatever the price of something might be? Are you reaching out to a Medicaid type of population so that they know they can get good dermatology care from you as well? The gentleman I mentioned, a lot of people don't know that you've got to bill people like three times before you can write it off. That's a rule. I was in Oregon until 2019, and Oregon has a very interesting Medicaid system. It's the famous prioritized list. So they overtly ration by diagnosis. And a quarter of Oregon's population is on Medicaid, and they have what they call the cutoff line. 2002, after 9-11 happened in 2000, the list moved up. There were like 700 diagnoses, and it went up to 400 over time. Doctors end up earning more with Oregon Health Plan. That was one of my issues in my group was Medicaid paid about 50% better than Medicare. Very interesting dilemma in a group where my partners had covered diagnoses, pediatrics, and gynecology. Pediatrics doing very well. (laughs) And half my practice was Medicare. I'm getting a little in the weeds, but Medicaid cut off all these diagnoses, all these dermatologic diagnoses, acne, psoriasis, eczema, eventually actinic were cut off. You couldn't hardly see them for anything. And so actually there are a lot of people who just haven't hit their earnings stride yet. They're right out of high school. They're not earning a lot yet. They don't have a serious medical problem. They have some acne or some mollusca, warts, et cetera, and they want it treated, and it's below the line. It's not covered by Oregon Health Plan. The state cares about you, but they really don't. My practice was perfect for them. They'd come in, and they'd have a very reasonable price, and they get treated nicely. There would be no stigma with Medicaid, which mm-hmm. there often is. And they were treated as nicely as the next person. We give them free samples, find them affordable mm-hmm. medications, give them my cell phone often, my email, and just treat them as a paying customer. And they were very happy. So then they tell their friends. That's a key. You provide a great service. They feel great about it. They tell their friends. That in and of itself is the best marketing that a a private practice can do. Wanting to have a practice that is diverse in socioeconomic status of patients, for instance, and combating that common criticism of you're only seeing well-to-do patients when you go the direct care route. I certainly think that's not true. And there are different ways that people can do this. Some practitioners have a sliding scale. Some people give scholarships, just say, hey, if you can prove to me that things really are difficult and you have some system for that, I'll just see you for free. We can do pro bono work like attorneys do. There's a lot of different ways. But the way that I did it, and I didn't really advertise it, but I sat aside one half day, a morning, a month, that was a minimum fee. And back then in 2011, I started with charging $10, which was a little bit too low. So I ended up doing for a longer visit it would be $20 and the shorter visit would be 10 but it would just be by time slot. It's really charitable because my costs of providing that are quite a bit higher. You know that. They're a lot higher, mm-hmm. even when you prune out all the extra stuff. Right. Your costs are higher. You have payroll. You have all sorts of other expenses. So I am funding that myself, but the skin in the game, I'm asking the patient to contribute something. And yes, there would be times when I would have somebody pay nothing. I had one person who was a long-term patient on Medicare and Medicaid. Over the years, Mm. I charged her $10. 
she paid 60 which at that time was yeah. the fee. My staff told me about it later, and she did that more than once. Really appreciated the service and being treated well. You do find out things about people. Some of the people I had on that limited fee, my parking area was right outside my office window, and you peek out and see what somebody's driving. <laughs> Sometimes they're driving something really rather nice. Right. I, if no. they said they were struggling, I'd keep them on there. I only had so many slots. I didn't do sliding scale. Earlier on, you were speaking my language, but people always say, oh, it's not a business, it's a calling. That's really not true when you're meeting payroll and you've got yeah. cleaning expenses and software expenses. That's one of my little pet peeves. It's a business. It's how you are buying your groceries and paying your own mortgage. Mm-hmm. And what you want to do is run a responsible business that creates great value for people and that you're so busy that you're full, which I was within just a couple of months of opening, which gave me the opportunity to do another thing, which wasn't a limited fee, but it was a walk-in. So I did, I'm trying to think, in, in Oregon, it's been a couple of years. I think that was every week we had a walk-in. It wasn't discounted, but people really appreciate it because I was in an underserved area. Mm. And people would drive for hours. They would sometimes come down the night before and spend the night in the hotel or something. Because of access or the fee model, people would thank me. They would thank my staff. Thank you for doing this. Doing what? Holding this walk-in. We had a little courtyard out mm-hmm. front. It's not as cold as where I live now, but we had installed mm. some heaters. And before the door opened, people would sit out there in the courtyard and wait. First come, first serve. And they might wait several hours. And they were so appreciative, even if they only had some little thing that they were worried about. Because they didn't have to wait months or if it was something that was really bothering them. Again, we know about these things, a ruptured cyst, a terrible itchy rash. Mm -hmm. Making them miserable, it might not be life-threatening, but it's really bothering them. It's really concerning them. And to be able to get in and be seen. So again, the the flexibility with this model is so much greater that you can do things like that. You don't have to ask anyone. You just do it. You decide what you think the price is. You see how it works out. If your patients are, your customers are, oh, here's another thing. It is not a business. (laughs) I like to call them customers as well. They're customers. They're bringing their wallets. They're paying for it. They're a customer. I don't believe the customer is always right. We don't let them abuse (laughs) their staff. It's, it's a mutual thing. You have to treat each other respectfully. But in my mind, absolutely, they're customers. So, yeah, offering more options we are, for the customers. We are absolutely speaking each other's language now because customer, client, whatever you decide to choose, yeah. it does matter, that language, in my opinion. And it affects the way that they perceive you if you speak like that. And I believe it affects the way that you and your staff treat them just by training your brain in that way. and. I agree. Boundaries. The customer is not always right. This is not, you don't, you can't go in a grocery store or a restaurant and start throwing things around and cursing at the staff and expect to be sat at the table. It's a different thing in medicine. We have empathy for people who are in pain and who are struggling. So there is that level of, okay, I understand that there may be a reason they're treating us like that. There's some leeway for that, but there's still a boundary and there's still lines and those lines get crossed and we need to react to that to protect ourselves and our staff and our practices, our business, like you said. Anybody can Uh, have a bad day and uh, 
That's the thing I taught my staff too, because, oh, it's true. Have you ever had a bad day? Yeah, I think we all have had a bad day. The ability to treat it like a business and know that you are depending on your customers and clients to keep the lights on. And if you are providing a really good product, you're customers are going to want to protect your business. They're going to want to support it. You will ask $10 and they might give you 60 because they recognize such value uh, in what you're giving and how it's so different than what they have received in the past. That's why I love being in this space right now because there is so much room to differentiate ourselves from what people are used to, even if it's as little as access. My goal is great access, great service, slash hospitality, transparent prices, and great outcomes. But even if you just have one of those, access. The cyst is ruptured now. It is horribly painful. It is draining. It smells. Oh, the doc has an appointment in four months. Come on. that Because that's not urgent. It's really hard for patients. And that's so frustrating. No wonder they come into our practices upset and angry already before they even see us sometimes. I might irritate some colleagues with this, but the bar is low. It's easy to compete. People are proud of their training and the excellence of their surgical work and their diagnostic capabilities. And those are very important and how hard Mm -hmm. they work. But friendliness too, it's just so, well, we have the goods and we're not going to let you have them, the mentality. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. To see that from the other side, which I have Mm. experienced. I, my husband and I have been self-pay for a number of years. I'm a sophisticated self-pay patient. We have fun. We have backup plans. Mm. Here's another story. I'm 65. My husband is too. He did it first, but we decided to have lens implants like cataract surgery before having cataracts. It's a luxury, but <laughs> it's great for sporting. You just don't have to mess with the contacts and the glasses anymore. So we paid for this out of pocket and it's quite wonderful. So we had this done in Oregon, but we moved to Montana. I went to an ophthalmologist, drove two and a half hours because we didn't have it locally. And a very nice doctor, he laughed when I asked what the price was for the laser. I already knew I needed it. I handed him a card. I'd done my research. I had all the codes on it. This is what you charge in Medicare. This is what you're getting ready to charge me. <laughs> and it was a whole lot more. And he just laughed, but he's, you can have the Medicare price with two utility fees in there. Okay. <laughs> it's just a giant That's stupid great. game. But it's... I play the game from both sides. I can be a good consumer, mm-hmm. but really, you're not treated very nicely a lot of the time as a self-pay or even with a high deductible or definitely with Medicare. Oh, you can only have one thing. We know why that is. And you can't say it. We're not paid well for addressing eight questions. So yeah, if somebody came in with their list of eight questions, I'm like, give it to me. We'll do them all. It it doesn't matter to me. I'm agnostic as to how many questions Hmm. you have. I don't care. I just want you to leave happy. You're able to do that because you're not lowering yourself to whatever the third party that is willing to give you for that. And so you're not constrained by that. You're not constrained by this stupid game. And you're not allowing yourself to be devalued. And you also know that doesn't mean that only 
well-to-do people get access to you. It's a straw man argument that's frustrating to hear and very easy to dispel. I love your stories. First of all. Thank you for sharing all of them and please continue to do. That's what this podcast is all about. The biggest thing I think people are going to get from it is inspiration. I call it part inspiration, part roadmap. We focus on the stories because that's the inspiration and that's how humans connect with each other. And the roadmap part is under the hood, nuts and bolts kind of stuff. What's your IT stack look like? How do you deal with phone calls and messages? That that kind of thing is helpful too, but Mm -hmm. the stories are the most important part. I wanted to ask about your work with the Free Market Medical Association because that interacts with a lot of this. I understand that you have a role with the one in Montana, at least, and perhaps prior to that. Tell our listeners a little bit about how you've been involved with them. So we go way back. We're friends with the founders, Dr. Keith Smith and uh, Jay Kempton, who came together. One is an insurance professional and one is an anesthesiologist really guy. And so we've been friends with it. We were actually on a panel together. I was with Dr. Smith, okay. who is also, oh, he's a really good pianist, way better than me. <laughs> oh, cool. My husband actually spoke for them back when I couldn't get away from the office. And he went and spoke at an annual meeting and met a now friend and colleague of mine who I won't say a name, I haven't asked permission, but she is also leading the path on direct pay. She came and visited my practice, and she's the one who got me into the Facebook groups, the dermatology group. My husband spoke on pricing, and then we've spoken together about specialty versus direct primary care, and we're going to actually be speaking again this year. So I have the Montana chapter of Free Market Medical Association, but I'm also on the board of Frontier Institute, which is Montana's new free market think tank, which is they're doing outstanding things, not just in medicine, but getting rid of some of the governmental obstacles, at least in our state, to allow people to solve problems in ways that are not government centered. And actually, a lot of times the government is the problem. I remain involved in those. And also, I really need to get my mobile part-time direct pay practice going. We've had a lot of, this is the thing about being the age that we are. It's family things, other things, COVID, of course. Uh, The recreational opportunities that we're taking advantage of, but I need (laughs) to do that. I've purchased equipment. We're just about ready to go. Uh, One of the main ways that I want to have an impact is show how people at an older age who are part-time in an underserved state can fill in gaps that are not served. And we have a lot of gaps here. And to have specialty positions, we're all very much aware of the role that non-physician, again, terminology, but I'll just say nurse practitioners, physician assistants, other people are doing dermatology, but to have specialists. In this state, we have a lot of people who are licensed who are not practicing and who could be. And I'm one of them. I've kept up my credentials. That is another way I want to have an impact, pave the path. And my husband being, and he's groundbreaking in what he's done with. And that's one of the ways that we want to have an impact going forward, but also on the policy. That's fantastic. I wanted to ask about your mobile clinic, and I can only imagine how much it takes to start something like that. And you want to be enjoying yourself. You've earned it. You mentioned you and your husband are 65, and you are not building a business like you might have built a business when you were 35. You value spending your time in different ways, and that's wonderful. 
but you're getting it up and running and you're being a pioneer again because people are going to be coming to you asking, Dr. Brown, I love this. You got this van and you tricked it out with all this uh, equipment and you're driving to people's houses. One of my pipe dreams is to come out to Montana Mm -hmm. and do this podcast from inside your van or inside your clinic. How cool would that be? And people are going to be wanting to learn how to do that because we can innovate. We can think outside the box. We can come to people where they are, especially in rural environments. You're leading that even if you don't have it off the ground yet. Were there any obstacles in terms of malpractice insurance or what was the trickiest thing when you're thinking about how do I change what I need to do with a mobile clinic, for instance? Or maybe it's the same because you're not necessarily going inside a person's home. You're just pulling up to their home, right? Tell me about that. There's, again, a lot of flexibility there. We can hold it in various venues. We did have a, a fancy vehicle made for us by a wonderful company called Nomad. It's a Montana company. Uh, we ended up selling that to a tribe that we were working with. We, mm. They are housing that, that about four hours from here over the Rockies on the other side. So we decided for a number of reasons that we're going to go even smaller. We have a very nice truck to really make it mobile. My husband actually way back was in senior management for Baltimore, Washington, Red Cross, and he re-engineered blood collection from large, heavy trucks to smaller mobile vehicles. So he has quite a bit of medical experience, even though he's not a medical person, in how to bring that to different types of locations. And uh, whether it's in someone's home or in an office, I think there is no one right way to do it. I'm also in a state that is easier to innovate. I have kept my license active. I could not have done that in Oregon. I never want to be practicing out of date. Mm-hmm. That would be a nightmare for me to do anything that's not up to up to current standards. But in Oregon, your license goes inactive within six months if you don't have an office address. I have my home address mm-hmm. and a P.O. box. Regulations are supposedly intended for patient safety, but there's a lot of bureaucratic obstacles. One of the fears people have is, oh, what if I might bump up into one of those obstacles? That is an objective of ours, is to find where the traps are and figure out ways around them. I certainly did that in Oregon. It was fun. At first, you're afraid. Oh my gosh, I ran into this. Some insurance company, a big insurance company came after me for a particular reason. You, You figure it out. One of the things I wanted to say for people doing direct pay Part of it, it absolutely is a business. You absolutely can fail. When you have a model based on people have already paid with insurance and they just funnel you customers, unless your overhead is too out of whack, you're going to succeed as long as you work enough hours. But there is a risk of failure. It's more like a restaurant. You're responsible for all of it. In terms of inspiration, I think this is a much happier way to practice. Again, not all patients get happy news. There's that news that you have to deliver. But in terms of having a happy day and your interactions and not feeling totally stressed out and overwhelmed with stupid bureaucracy, it's possible to do what you love. And Mm -hmm. a lot of what you love is interacting with all these nice people. It's possible to do that and have a happy day. That's perfect. You're not stopping being a doctor and doing a job that is very difficult at times. That is challenging because we are 
charged with caring for people in difficult times. Even the dermatologist, people can make jokes. I don't care. I laugh at the jokes. It, there's the great Seinfeld episode. It's yeah. it, it, jokes are funny for a reason. Right. And if you can't right. laugh at them, especially when you're the butt of the joke, you, that there's a lot of defensiveness in that. But we also deal with people who are struggling. You you would not make a joke about a dermatologist taking care of someone with early stage three hydradenitis who cannot do anything. They cannot work. They cannot be intimate. They cannot play a sport. They can't exercise. We deal with heavy things, but if you take all that other stuff that grinds us down on top of the human mm -hmm. part of our job that is challenging, then you have some bandwidth left at the end of the day and you don't feel terrible. You can feel great about what you did and you can be excited to go in the next day. That's why I see this model as one of the options to combating and preventing or reversing uh, burnout as a chronic disease among physicians for all of the reasons you mentioned, how wonderful it is for doctors to just enjoy being doctors and like doctors used to, I think a lot of things have changed, but the biggest one is the barriers between physician and patient. The fewer barriers are, there are, the more the physician and patient feels closer and the, the therapeutic part of that therapeutic physician-patient relationship comes back. 100% agree. The things that people tell you and trust you with, that relationship yeah. is really what sustains you and renews you yes. so that you can do the hard part. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. And people trust you again. Trust is a, a thing that's been lost, not necessarily the doctor's fault, but it's eroded. And patients come into a physician's office already skeptical often because of what they've experienced in the past in terms of lack of transparency or long wait times, whatever it may be. If you can not have to deal with those things and just work on creating a sense of hospitality and caring and flexibility. People are going to trust you. And if you trust your doctor, it's a lot easier to get better. I value that so much. It's one of the reasons I'm, I'm doing this podcast. I'm responsible for getting my patients in. I can fail. My business can easily fail if I don't attract people to me. And not everyone's going to be attracted to me. I want the people who are going to be mean to me to, to run away as far as they can. So that's a nice thing about this. You, you can give people a little sense, but you can also allow people in and make the physician-patient relationship not such a one-way street. People can get to know me a little bit before they commit those valuable resources to me instead of someone else. That is such a gift of the direct uh, care model, especially doing it nowadays where a person like me can decide to have a podcast and send a message to Dr. Brown, who's been doing this for decades and a pioneer in this space and say, hey, come on and tell me all your stories about how you did this thing because I want to do it too. It's just wonderful. I love your enthusiasm and I, I predict you're going to really succeed very well. You have the right attitudes and knowledge and enthusiasm and, of course, the skills. I think you're going to succeed at it. This, you mentioned the skills. I don't want to cut you off, but I would hate to forget about this. A lot of doctors rest on their laurels of their training and they have a chip on their shoulder or expectations. If you approach it from the customer perspective, as a physician, all of that stuff is assumed. <laughs> they don't necessarily care that you went to Duke or UW or Stanford as opposed to, to somewhere else. They assume you are a competent, skilled physician. 
that is baseline. <laughs> what is going to earn you their respect is all the stuff on top of that. Yeah. If you are not competent, that's a whole nother issue, but it's not simply being competent. That part is assumed. It's just like going to the grocery store and you assume that the food is not spoiled. That goes to integrity. There's the training and the keeping up with it. But sadly, we mm -hmm. do sometimes see people who are very well-trained, very smart, have lost their integrity. Patients have every right to assume that, but they, they should do their homework. And that's oh, yeah, where for sure. reputation is a surrogate for quality that so those are your valued referrals. Somebody refers their granddaughter, their great-granddaughter, their their family member, that trust. Yeah. We love all that stuff. Um, most of us do going to conferences and updating our skills and soaking up the mm -hmm. knowledge and even being tested. We love that stuff. <laughs> they have every right to assume it, but that's something that we're responsible for, not shortchanging people. And that's the problem is that some physicians have the mindset that's all they need. Those are the folks I would be concerned about transitioning into a, a model like this where it's all that stuff on top that you are really required to have or you will fail. Like you said, with the insurance model, you can have only the baseline competence. And as long as you're seeing enough patients and signing enough charts and writing the notes correctly, you will stay in business. You might not get great reviews, but there's enough mm -hmm. demand that you will likely stay in business. And isn't that sad? Uh, but <laughs> yeah, isn't it sad? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's sad. And those people are often the ones who are struggling saying, I'm sick of all this stuff and I, I dread going to work, but I'm going to do it because it's a good income after I see however many number of patients I need to see. And the patients feel that or the customers are, are feeling that. Everyone's feeling it when it's a practice like that. Some people may be attracted <clears throat> to direct pay for the wrong reasons, but I think the right reason mm -hmm. is that you can do a great job for people and you can make a good living and how much of a good living that's really yeah. up to you to determine. Yeah. And your customers want you to make a good living. Everyone's aligned there. They, they want you to be there for them. They want you to want to come to work. I don't think we need to go under the hood too much today. I would love to have you back down the road and even in person sometimes would be a pipe dream. I have never been to Montana, but I really want to go. I'm in Wisconsin. You kept bringing up your husband and he, what an asset to your team he is. Having someone who is an IT professional, has this amazing background in the crossover with the healthcare industry. Why don't we close with a bit about working with a spouse and building a, a business and balancing that and family life? Whether you're working together or not, there are risks when you're an entrepreneur of being too deep in the business, especially when it's early because it's a baby and it needs your attention all the time. You feel like that at least. And how you have balanced that over time with with your husband and now getting to work together. I think it certainly can be challenging. We'll hash these things out where, you know, on some something where he sees it one way and I see it another way. But I think we enjoy that overall. Yeah. enjoy figuring those things out. But yeah, sometimes we disagree. Perfect. But it's an incredible asset to have a spouse who brings their skills into play. And my husband came from a small business family. Okay. So I married into that. And I learned about that. And I think there's a lot of benefit. It has its risks. But the whole work-life balance thing, I don't know. I think that's a little bit of a, I don't know, we like to work hard. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess my work-life balance is now I'm getting to not have to work all the time, but it's overall a benefit to have a spouse and it's something that we enjoy doing together with other things.
that are common interests, but to build a business yeah. together. And he's had his own business too, that has been very successful. It's great. I recommend it. i appreciate that i i was perhaps projecting onto you with that question with us being at different stages i'm building a business right now when i have children who are a year and a half and four years old and a a, uh, a spouse who also works so i think every day about the fact that all the cups need to be filled they can't all be filled at the same time but i can't always be filling the business cup just because i'm doing it for my family right i i think a lot about that. And I want my listeners who are in a similar stage to me to to make sure that they are not just paying attention to their business. You will lose everything if you only pay attention to one of those things in your life. That's true. And no matter how you do it, it's not easy having a business. It's not easy being a physician. It's not easy raising kids. Mm-hmm. When we moved to Oregon, our kids yeah. were one in three. And there, we there both worked excessive hours. And we've always worked kind mm-hmm. of excessive hours, but also at the same time found ways to like you say, fill all the cups, pay attention to our daughters and do fun things with them. It's Mm -hmm. not easy, but we're competitive and driven people. And I don't know (laughs) whether that's a good thing for your kids or not. I think we raised our kids well, and I think we had a lot of fun. I, I, I have no doubt about that. And I imagine if we asked them that they would be very honest about how grateful <laughs> they are for their parents and how you raise them and the, the examples you set for them. They see two people building businesses and having fun with their kids, balancing those things. That's a great example to show. In closing, if you have one piece of advice for someone who is considering or is starting out their direct pay practice, I would love to hear that. And then I want to give you an opportunity if anyone wants to reach out to you or if you'd like anyone to look into more of what you're doing right now, whether it's your practice or the Free Market Medical Association, anything like that, we'll have it in the show notes. But if there's anything at all that you'd like to promote here, I'd be happy for you to do that. I think number one would be think hard about why you're interested in direct pay, if Hmm. not uh, get rich quick, to do it for the right reason so that you can practice medicine well and Enjoy your medical practice, not burn out. Work hard for patients. You're a better doctor when you see quite a few people. You have that experience. In terms of contacting, I don't have a live website. My new practice is, I got a great URL, a great website. It's Montana Dermatology. How did we That's get pretty that? good. <laughs> nice work. But I anticipate within just a few months we'll have that up and running. And so that'll be easier to really share with people in the future. I think more people should do it. I think they need a formal business plan. Don't just wing it. Big spreadsheet, put all your expenses down, figure out how much you really need to make. We didn't even talk about raising prices. I had to raise prices because I was too busy mm-hmm. and wanted to earn more. And But start out with getting people in the door. Start out with uh, yeah. being profitable. Don't have to be terribly profitable at first. How much do you really need to make? And then how much would you like to make? And put that all down. And just the the whole thing about doctors aren't good business people. You you need to be a good business person and get help. Get competent help. (laughs) That's such valuable advice. What a great way to close. regardless of whether you think it's a business, you as a physician are a business. You have a brand. You don't get to say, oh, I don't like brands. I don't have it. You either 
contribute to curating your brand or someone else does, but you have a brand. And as if you have a, a medical degree, you have a business, you have a small business and you can sell those rights to a company and be an employee and that's okay. Or you're responsible for taking care of that business on your own. Pay for good help. I love that. Decide how much you need and then decide how much you want and write all those things down and take it slowly, allow it to grow at a reasonable pace. You wouldn't want to burn out just growing the business and you don't want to push it too far and end up out of alignment with what you wanted to do initially. The returns are not linear like they are in an employed model. They're more exponential. You have to understand that at the beginning, you're not going to be going gangbusters in terms of profit. You're figuring things out. You're building that and you want to build it right so you're not sacrificing the product that you're putting out. I love that. Uh, and you get paid advice. last. You're, you're the last to get paid. Yes. So Le- leaders okay. eat last, right? That's okay. <laughs> yeah, that is okay. Yes. <laughs> there are many di- different benefits to business ownership and we have to be responsible for that. It's a trade-off. When you choose to be an employee, you get many wonderful benefits, literally benefits and other benefits that aren't called that, but you're sacrificing certain things. When you choose business ownership, many wonderful benefits, but you're also sacrificing certain things and you have a lot more responsibilities, right? But you can delegate those responsibilities. They still are your responsibility and you have to take care of your people if you have people and it eventually will come back to you if you have that servant leader mindset, which you clearly have, and you extend that same to your customers, not just to your team. We have lots to talk about in the future. First of all, going under the hood about how you're running your practice. Montana Dermatology is going to be up and running within a few months. We can talk about that. Raising prices, when to do it, how to do it, how to not feel bad about it. If you don't raise prices, you go out of business. People understand that prices go up. They just don't need to go up astronomically. So tons more to talk about. I would love to have you back on again in a few months. You've been so generous with your time and your experience. I know folks listening to this are going to be like, Dr. Brown, I've learned so much from her on Facebook. Facebook. She doesn't know me, but I'm a fan and all all that sort of thing. You've already taught a lot of us so much and you've now taught us even more with this hour plus of your time. So thank you very much uh, for being here. And I am excited to to talk to you again down the road. I loved it. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you. This episode of the Direct Care Derm podcast is brought to you by Above and Beyond Dermatology my virtual direct care practice that is this episode of the direct care derm podcast is brought to you by above and beyond dermatology my virtual direct care practice that is this episode of the direct care derm podcast is brought to you by above and beyond dermatology my virtual direct care practice that is on a mission to raise the standard of care in dermatology if you're interested in learning more subscribe to the above and beyond dermatology newsletter at LlewellisMD.com, or simply find me on Instagram, also at LlewellisMD. Follow me so your message will get to my inbox, and DM me the word newsletter. If you want to get on the list and also get my free guide to starting and consistently using a topical retinoid on your skin, head over to retinoids, R-E-T-I-N-O-I-D-S dot You can also find links in the show notes. 
My primary focus with Above and Beyond Dermatology is helping people with chronic inflammatory skin diseases who haven't felt served, seen, or heard in the insurance-dependent dermatology market. The signature Above and Beyond framework for flipping the script on how you experience dermatology care might surprise and delight you and can ultimately transform you if you're willing to put in the work. I also love to help with quicker things that simply need to be addressed in a timely manner. This reduces unnecessary suffering and possible misdiagnosis or mistreatment, as well as overall costs. The latter is a great alternative if you find yourself waiting three to six months or longer for an appointment with the in-network dermatologist closest to you. If you know any Wisconsin residents who may be in the market for a dermatologist, please share this with them. I'll gradually be obtaining licensure in other states so I can serve a broader geography. I don't contract with health insurance companies. I prefer to contract directly with my patients, clients, or customers, whatever term resonates most with you in the context of a health transformation. This direct connection helps restore the eroded physician-patient relationship, which is the essence of direct care. Simply call or text 715-391-9774 or email drlewellis, D-R-L-E-W-E-L-L-I-S, at aboveandbeyondderm.com for more information. There is no obligation. I'm happy to hop on a call to discuss if I'm right for you or your family and teach you about my philosophy and approach. If I'm not the best person for the job, I'll do my best to help you get to someone who is. If you're not a Wisconsin resident but would like to pitch me on becoming licensed in your state, I'd love to talk to you as well. Hey, Stephen here. If you enjoyed this episode, the best way you can support a podcast is to share, follow, subscribe, and most importantly, leave an honest review on Apple Podcast or your favorite podcast hosting platform. If you're new here, you might not feel ready to leave an honest review yet. That's totally fine. At the very least, keep listening and share it with one person in your life who you think might benefit from it. Thanks for being here. Your attention means the world to me. I'll see you on the next episode.